Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and this week we're talking about how universities are supporting the evidence to policy process. With me to discuss that is Stephen Meek, Director of the Institute for Policy and Engagement at the University of Nottingham and also Chair of the University's Policy Engagement Network. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Gavin. It's great to be here. And obviously some individual academics have always provided expertise to support policymakers but in recent years universities have been thinking about supporting these activities more systematically at an institutional level. What sort of things have universities been doing in this area? Well I think it's a range of things and um, lots of individual universities have been doing different things to different extents but the things I've seen are there's things like more systematic identification of opportunities. So select committee calls, government evidence. There's providing training and support. So how do you identify opportunities to understand how policy is made or how to write policy briefs? Then there's proactively building networks. So you might be hosting round tables or seminars or providing speakers. You might be offering fellowships and secondments. And then there's also the sort of producing policy focused reports. So somewhere like King's College London um, is at the forefront here, but also the Bennett Institute in Cambridge. So producing work that is aimed directly at policymakers rather than research that can be adapted. And in some cases, universities have been setting up institutions specifically devoted to this so like the one I'm leading in Nottingham like the one you used to lead in Southampton um, some of these are faculty specific some of them are university-wide almost everywhere is investing in it but they're all doing it in different ways so it's quite a world of experiment. What's driving this trend for this increase in activity? Yeah. So I think there's two things which are closely related I mean the first kind of institutionally is the ref. So, you know, the, an impact case study is worth several four-star pieces of research. The last ref round showed, I think to a lot of people's surprise, that policy-facing case studies were a very high proportion of impact case studies. So this time university, and this is how you, you know, research is funded. So this time universities are investing in support rather than leaving it to chance so that's the sort of you know the, the slightly boring institutional driver sure uh, and I think the the other driver is because it's the right thing to do there's a lot of talk of the civic university and you know institutions want to be able to demonstrate the difference they've made and I mean as you said right at the start in, lots of individual academics have engaged with policymakers and you know they're not there's not just interest in it from individual academics simply because the incentives have changed i think the way the the changes in the way the the research is evaluated and rewarded by government has meant that where previously this engagement was a bit of a risk for your career or for your time um, because it was time not spent teaching or not spent doing peer-reviewed research it's now something that is more recognised and rewarded. So it's unlocking a lot of pent-up supply. So you mentioned changes here. One barrier is academic time, and that, of course, is a function of the different drivers placed on academic staff. What are universities doing to reward their staff for this type of engagement? 
Okay, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I don't think there's one single answer. I mean, the obvious question is, and the issue that keeps emerging and that universities are in various different ways moving towards is allocating time through workforce planning and recognitions through reward schemes and promotion so that impact work has a sort of legitimate space in the working week and in the career structure alongside the imperatives of research and teaching. So I think that's necessary. It's taking time and uh, it's taking different forms. But I think it's in thinking about this, it's important to recognise that not all academics will be doing work that will have impact. And that's not a bad thing. That's what, you know, universities are not just about having impact. And you don't want to create an environment in which people feel they ought to be doing impact when they'd be better off teaching or researching or playing a leadership role or whatever. You know, you don't want um, people who simply want to have impact to build a CV rather than because they've got something that is really valuable. So I think the reward and recognition needs to be permissive rather than prescriptive. So it's part of a balanced system of how you manage your time, how you allocate reward and recognition. And within the support structures and support teams that uh, you were discussing earlier, what are the skills and experiences that are needed in those teams so they can work as evidence brokers? Well, I think, I mean, the first thing is you need an insight into a university. So you need to understand what are the incentives, what motivates, what, you know, what, what is it that, that gets academics going? So that's thing one. But I think thing two is an insight into how policy is made. So this might come from working government, like um, as was the case with the two of us, or maybe working in a think tank or an NGO, or perhaps because you've learned this as part of your research history or workers work on impact in a department. So I think you can get it through various ways. But fundamentally, I think you need to understand how policy making works, because it can look like a black box to the outside world. It's quite simple to think that policy making, you know, good policy making is simply here's the evidence, you turn it into practice. Whereas actually evidence is just one part of making policy. It's a critical part. You can't have good policy without good evidence. But you also need to take into account, you know, as a, as a, as a policymaker, you need to take into account resources, competing priorities, um, political values, parliamentary arithmetic, public issue, public opinion, issues of deliverability. And these, these are all for very good reasons. These aren't factors that pull against good evidence-based policy. Balancing all these factors is how good policy is put into practice in the real world. And I think being able to understand that, communicate that, helps as an evidence broker, helps you give insight to the academics with whom you're working of how it is they can shape their interventions to be most useful and also to inject a bit of realism into what impact is likely to be, what to expect as an outcome um, from impact. And I think, you know, also a bit of an insight into how government works, the difference between um, all party parliamentary groups, select committees, parliament, government, civil servants. Sure. So you know how to pitch uh, what you're doing. This is quite new. Is this a sort of an, a new emerging profession within higher education institutes? 
I think it possibly is, yeah. Um, I mean, again, it's all part of this sort of natural experiment that we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. And as you said, with every university, you know, cultivating a slightly different Petri dish of skills. But um, I think it is quite a distinct capability. And how does the evidence broker public policy role within universities work alongside some of universities other professional service functions such as the communications team or the more general public engagement team i think the link i mean they are they are slightly different but the link is very close and i think where the connections are is that they're all about engaging with particular audiences so they're framing the research in ways that speak to the people you want to engage and i think for many academics they understand that with the communication side they understand that with the public engagement side but there's a bit of a frustration with the policy impact side so to go into sort of explore that a bit you know for communications i think people know that it's it's what's the hook that journalists um, will pick up on you know what what's the thing that will get it on you know the pay, pay, page seven of the Daily Mail, or the the what are the wacky boffins up to this week section of the Today program, and similarly with public engagements, you know what is the hook that will bring people with often very little prior knowledge, but you know an enthusiasm might be a group of kids, might be adults, might be a, a particular um, community that you're working with, you know, what is it that will actually bring the research alive to them? You know, you, you instinctively know in those instances that you've got to make the effort to understand the people you're talking to. With policy impact, I think it is very similar. You've got to think, what is it that a policy maker can do with the insight I bring? And I think often this is a bit of a shock for academics you know i've written this paper why won't they engage directly with it they're you know they're well paid they're intelligent why do i need to think of them as an audience but they are very much an audience they're a very distinct audience they're highly intelligent in large part but they're not specialist they're often synthesizing a very wide range of evidence um, not just you know a very um, um, specialist piece of evidence and fundamentally, they're interested in what you can do with a piece of knowledge, not that knowledge for its own sake. So how you shape the way you communicate with them is absolutely critical. You know, they're time poor. Um, they often have days rather than years to, to turn things around. So how do, you, how do you shape your intervention to engage with them is um, absolutely critical. I think there's one other important connection as well, and this is this is both true of communications, but I think particularly of the link with public engagement. So policymakers are driven by evidence, obviously, yeah. you know, that evidence supports it, but they're also driven by public consent. You know, you can't, politicians can't go too far ahead of where the public are on an issue, um, because then the public will vote them out. And not only can you not do act on that particular issue you can't act on any other issue either so you know leading the public but not being so far ahead is critical so promoting public understanding through effective public engagement i think can be a really critical component of having policy impact and it's really i think often again we think it's let's find the right person to talk to and persuade them but actually if it's a you know if it's if it's a 
fraught area, if it's a new area, if it's a very grand challenge, if it's climate change, if it's you know dealing with a dealing with a pandemic, you also need to engage with the public as well. And there's a big responsibility there. So I, I see the two as very closely connected. That's really interesting because of course a lot of universities separate out some of these functions mm. because they are looking to engage with different audiences but from what you're saying it's actually really important to coordinate some of the messages so that as you go and engage with policy makers you're also mm. engaging with the public yeah. yeah no and i think i mean obviously we are <laughs> nottingham the institute for policy and engagement so we've got them um, together and, and in a way coming in as a policymaker, I've had to learn public engagement, but I've increasingly seen policy impact as a subset of public engagement rather than as an adjunct. I think it's interesting as well when you're talking to, you know, when I'm talking to research funders, whether it's Wellcome or UKRI or others, increasingly they're thinking, when they're thinking about public engagement, the future of public engagement, they're thinking about, well, what difference does public engagement make i mean it's it's a long-standing debate within public engagement that you're moving away from you know show and tell big explosions you know all of which is really important but into well how is public engagement helping people do things differently understand things better and so you know i think i think from a funding point of view as well there's sort of the issues are moving together now, obviously, in this area, there's, there's an element to which individual universities are competing with each other in the same way they compete with each other yeah. on everything else. But there's also uh, a need to work together. How are universities collaborating in this public, uh, public policy work? OK, well, the, the, I think one of the main vehicles is a thing called the Universities Policy Engagement Network, which I currently chair, having taken over from one Gavin Costigan, <laughs> um, who set it up. Uh, almost two years ago and the network came into being precisely because of the the kind of the natural experiment that we've referred to a couple of times in the podcast and um, the sense that lots of universities are trying lots of different things and that you know even though we are in competition there's a general benefit that by sharing a bit of expertise by learning from one another from one another and building the right networks we're floating all boats rather than giving anyone a particular advantage so UPenn I think does three things broadly I mean the first is it does this sort of the learning the sharing bringing together best practice the second thing it does is it provides a single point of entry into uh, university impact functions that can be used by parliament or by government and increasingly is being used by parliament and by government so that they can put in a request you know we want you know secondees to do x or we want um, evidence on y or we're doing a select committee hearing on x and they know by giving it to UPenn that it will then go to people in the 60 or so universities, member universities, whose job it is to get that call in front of the relevant academic. Whereas previously, it was a bit random. The calls would go out, it might be picked up, it might not. And you'd often go to the usual suspects, you know, the people who are your regular committee hearing. So I think there's something really important there about giving 
Parliament a means of accessing a much wider range of academics different from different universities, from different geographies, different career stages, and similarly for universities who previously may have struggled to get attention in the policy space, they're now they've got a way of, of getting in front of, of academics. And, you know, I mean, one small but I think significant thing that happened recently is Department of Health and Social Care put out a call for a series of seminars on a, a subject. I can't remember what the subject was. And they came back to us and said that their speakers for the entire series are universities with whom they hadn't engaged directly previously. And I think that's a really good yeah. thing. And then the final thing that as UPEN can do is not just work out how we can respond better to the demands of government, is that we can also help government work out how to engage better with universities to draw on the value here. And, you know, an example of that is, you know, we've just produced a report on government areas of research interest, looking at the experience of working with government on those and also suggesting ways in which government can sort of develop its uh, systems around that to get better input from universities. So you just picked up on the areas of research interest and government departments and obviously the other side of the evidence to policy equation is government themselves. So do you think that civil servants have within their own system the the structures they need, the time they need and the skills to engage with academics and that the evidence that they have? I think it's quite a mixed picture and I think different departments do it in different ways so I'm going to do a sort of generalized response which will no doubt be unfair to to many I mean in some ways civil servants are really well placed to engage with academics because they tend to be evidence-driven people they tend not to be approach issues through an ideological lens they're obviously very interested in policy so it's not just the evidence but you know there there are certain parallels there and you know no doubt they've all got similar Myers-Briggs characteristics and you know introverts speaking unto introvert but there is you know there are different things in their world as well so they have a different kind of time pressure they need to turn things around in days and weeks not in months and years and they often they also operate between you know in a constrained window of possibility so it's the it's the values and manifestos of and of the political party of the government um, that they're serving so that you know they can't just recommend anything because the evidence says anything sure so that you know that, that that's just their world but i think they're often and this is probably i think increased um, over time is that they're poorly networked with experts and with academics churn within the civil service people moving rapidly from post to post has always been an issue throughout the time i was there from the early 90s on but it's been particularly the case in the last few years as a combination of department shrinking and you know dealing with successively the aftermath of the financial crisis with brexit and now um, with cb19 you know that people move around so what a consequence of that is policymakers often know the policy, but not the subject. And they don't have the time or the opportunity to develop a depth of understanding because they're often thrown in very quickly yeah. to handling a problem rather than finding out what it is they're supposed to be doing. And I think this creates a culture which is often quite defensive 
So opening up policy to question, you know, from bringing in anyone other than your usual suspects of academic and other consultees can seem risky or disloyal. And I think that's particularly the case for junior or middle ranking civil servants. I think, you know, there's a something that was very important to me when I was a civil servant is, you know, the, the, the civil servant's job fundamentally is to implement the policy of the government of the day, you know, in the best way yeah. possible. And that is what we're there for. But part of that is understanding the challenges around the design delivery so that the policy is robust. So that means you've got to open yourself up to critical and constructive challenge. You've got to understand what are the other ways of doing this. You know, in a way that, actually this was a recommendation from the Chilcot inquiry, you've got to challenge groupthink. Are we all just agreed that this policy works because we've said this policy works? We need to be able to spot where it's just noise from people who don't like the government, don't like what we're doing, etc. Or actually, this is something that we need to take seriously. And I think there's a danger that in a defensive culture, you interpret everything as critical noise rather than an important signal. So I think what might change there, what might universities be involved in helping changing that? I think the time invested in building networks so that when you go into a job as a civil servant, it is seen as part of your development, your responsibility of just building a network of expertise, not just academic expertise, but would include academic expertise, using, as it were, sort of peacetime, you know, when your policy isn't in the headlines, to build up your understanding, to learn around the subject, but also to build that network of people who understand the world that you're in. You know, what are the constraints on you? What are the political constraints? What's the range of the possible? So they are better when you actually need them of giving advice that is really relevant rather than just saying, well, you know what, I wouldn't start from here. Something that a civil servant never has the option of doing. And I think one for other thing, you know, and, and, you know, we managed to go this far without mentioning Dominic Cummings. One of Dominic Cummings' criticisms of the civil service is its understanding of science yes. and i think there's there's definitely something in there so there's a there's a longer term issue for the civil service about the nature of its recruitment and who it brings in and so forth but in the short term i think there's something really that universities can do it's to help build that sort of understanding of science whether it's data science whether it's pandemic science whatever but how do we help, how do we help the civil service do that and i think if just going back to the public policy engagement teams in different universities, as they become professional and they help their own academics explain and engage with policymakers in the way that policymakers need, actually that helps this education of the civil service, but it also provides the information they need in a timely way in the right kind of package that civil servants can actually take at that moment. So, yeah. yeah, yes, absolutely. We've come to the end. Thank you very much, Stephen Meek. Pleasure. Thank you, Gavin. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.